Today we're going to begin a study in the book of Philippians. So if you have Bibles, please turn there. Philippians is what, one of those books that we call a prison epistle. It was written by the Apostle Paul uh, around 61, 62 AD. The other prison epistles are Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Now, Paul had planted the church in Philippi in about 49 AD, about 12, 13 years before he actually wrote this letter to them from his prison in Rome. You can read about that in the the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. So I would encourage you this week as we sort of begin the process of working through Philippians to go back there and read Acts 16. And it gives you the story of how the church was founded. I encourage you also to read the book through a couple of times. It's a, it's a powerful little book. 12 years later, when Paul was in prison in Rome, the church took an offering and they sent it to him via a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus went to Rome, ministered to Paul. He almost died there in prison, but God graciously allowed him to recover. Paul wrote a letter, gave it to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brings it back to the church in Philippi, and we have an exact copy of that letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit under the pen of the Apostle Paul, read in the church of Philippi, I'm sure, shared with all of the churches in Greece, Thessalonica, and other places, Corinth. But we have an exact copy of that letter that we are going to study over these next few months. And it's my prayer that this study will bless and encourage and challenge and edify us as we study it together. One of the things that we learn, and you'll find this out if you take some time this week to read through Philippians once or twice or three times, you'll find out that Philippians, the church, was an amazing church. It was a great church. Personally, I think that if you had asked the Apostle Paul, Paul, what is your favorite church? He would have said Philippians. Now, he may not have said this. Like, if I ask you which one is your, of your kids is your favorite kid, you're not going to tell me, right? You're, oh, they're all my favorite. I love them all equally, that kind of stuff. But in, in that sort of secret place in my imagined view of Paul's heart, I think he loved the Philippians. They had a special place in his heart. I think he deeply, deeply cherished them. It wasn't a great church. It wasn't a perfect church, but it was a great church. It was theologically precise. It was godly in spirit and behavior. It was structurally sound, and it was deeply committed to Jesus. And, you know, over the past little while, as I have gotten to know you, I've had the privilege, as you know, of preaching here a number of times in the last year. Um, as I have gotten to know you, I sense there are certain, certain similarities between you and the Philippian church. I said it when I was preaching here a few months ago, not knowing I was coming back. I said, you know what? You are a great church. Not a perfect church, but you're a great church. Theologically precise, precise structurally sound. There's a, there's a deep spirit of love in here. Our brother who was just baptized referenced that. He walks in amongst you and he senses the presence of Jesus in the way that you are loving each other and he wanted to belong here. This is a great church, but every great church can either go one of two ways. Great churches can become less great in time, or great churches can become greater. And it's my prayer that as we study this passage of Scripture together, that God will use it to cause us to become a greater congregation for his glory here in Markham. So what I'd like to do, by way of introduction, is ask the question, what makes... A, ch- a great church, great. 
and what can be done to make it greater. I'd like you to take your Bibles and we'll read the first six verses. And I'm going to speak as fast as I can because I only have a short period of time. So bear with me as I speed up. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So what makes a great church great? I'm going to say five things very quickly. The first thing is this, servant leaders or servant leadership. Paul introduces himself, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The word servant here can be translated bondservant. It also is translated slave. So there's no doubt that Paul and, and Timothy understood their, their place in the kingdom. They were slaves of their master, Jesus Christ. You know, this church would never, ever, ever have been planted had it not been that that reality was forefront in their thinking and in their affections. That posture caused Paul to do what he did when the church was planted in the first place. So when you're reading Acts 16 this week, you're going to discover that Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, he's also referred to in some places in Scripture, Timothy and Luke were ministering together in Phrygia and Galatia, which is southern central Turkey today. And their plan was to go to Asia. You know, the seven churches of the Reformation were in the western part of today, modern Turkey, Ephesus, Pergamum, those places. That was their plan. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus said, no, I don't want you to go there. So they stopped. They decided, well, where should we go? They said, well, let's go to Bithynia. Let's go north to the shore of the Black Sea. Let's preach the gospel there because there's no churches up there. And they made preparation to go north to Bithynia. And the Spirit of God said, the Spirit of Jesus said, no, stop. So they stopped. And then God gave Paul a vision, a man from Macedonia in Greece calling to him and saying, come, come and share the gospel with us. And I want to read to you exactly what happens from Acts chapter 16, verse 8 and following. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Taurus, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Concluding, because God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Immediately. Notice that Paul and his team were obeying God. We want to go to Asia. No, don't go there. Okay. We want to go to Bithynia. No, that's not the plan. Okay. God gives Paul clear direction. Go to Greece. And so they leave Asia, and they cross the Aegean Sea, and they go to Macedonia, they go to Greece, and they found their way to Philippi. When they got there, they, Paul's usual practice was to go to the synagogue in Philippi. It was a Gentile city. There was no synagogue, but there was a bunch of Jewish women who were meeting by a river that runs past, still is there today, runs past the ruins of Philippi. He went out on Sabbath to pray, 
He met a woman by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple. And the Lord, the Bible says, opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. God saved this woman as Paul shared the gospel. Lydia invited Paul and his team to stay with her in her home. It was, probably, it was, very, it was a large home. She was a wealthy woman. And so they took up that opportunity. And Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, week after week after week, they went to the side of the river on the Sabbath. They prayed. They shared the gospel. And more people got saved. A young slave girl who was exploited by her masters was, had, a, had a spirit of divination and would say things like, this, these men are, are, are followers of the, the great God. And, and, and Paul got frustrated one day. This went on for a long time. And finally, he turned to her and he cast the demon out of her. The people who owned her became very, very upset because their source of income had suddenly dried up. And they, they caused all kinds of problems. The upshot of it was Paul and Silas ended, ended up in prison. They were beaten, ended up in prison. And you know the story. There was a great earthquake, and, and, and Paul and Silas were freed from prison. The consequence of that was that the jailer of the guy who ran the jail in Philippi and his whole family got saved. And the church was birthed. But it was shaped, it was birthed, and it was shaped, it was nurtured by men who were servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, men who understood that they were slaves of Jesus. And they modeled servant leadership to such an extent that 12 years later, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he tells them this. If you take your Bible, flip over to chapter 2, verse 19 and following. He says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. For all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you as soon as I possibly can. And I've got no one like him. He will be concerned for your welfare, not like other people. He is passionate about the interests of Jesus Christ. That's servant leadership. People who are concerned about your welfare, who put you above themselves, who consider you more important than themselves, and who are passionate about the interests, the cause, the mandate of Jesus. So Paul is continuing to inculcate this value into the life of the church. It was servant leaders who birthed it. Servant leaders shaped the DNA of this church. Paul sends a servant leader 12 years later back to minister to the church, and that spilled out into the ethos, the culture of the church. As I said, when I began, I, I sense that there is that same spirit in this place. Within you, there is a, a desire to serve one another, a desire to honor one another as more important than myself. There is a beautiful spirit in this church that God has, God has created. And I don't know a whole lot about how the church was started and how it began, but I know that Paul and Sue came here early on in the process of this church developing. And since I've gotten to know Paul and, and, and more recently Sue, what is clear about them is that they have a servant's heart. They understand that they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are slaves of Christ. I love it when Paul prays. When I first got to know him, we were helping a church down in Niagara. And he would always pray Psalm 115, verse 1, to begin, his, to begin his prayer. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but be your name, give, but to your name, give glory. 
You see, that is the heart of a servant. It's not about me. It's not about me being first. It's not about me being on a pedestal. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ receiving glory and honor and praise and me being a faithful servant doing what God has called me to do in the context of this church, loving others, laying my life down for others. Servant leadership. Folks, self-serving, self-willed, selfish leaders create selfish churches. Instead of serving Christ, they serve themselves. And this is why the prosperity gospel is so wrong. Prosperity gospel is all about God serving me. It's all about the gospel making my life better. And that's not the message of Philippians. Go to chapter 1, the very, the very last two verses. Look at what he says in verses 29 and following. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, so it's been granted to you by grace that you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also suffer for his sake. Put yourself second or third when it's necessary. Serve, give, lay down your life for the cause. Lay down your life for someone else. Adopt the posture of a servant. And, and, it's, and it shouldn't surprise us that this is the heart of the gospel because it was the heart of Christ. Jesus said it himself. I came into this world not to be served, but to what? Serve and give my life a ransom for many. So I want you to look at the person beside you. Just who, I don't care who it is, but look at him and say, I am here to serve you. I am here to serve you. That is the posture. That is the attitude. And it doesn't matter. I don't care if you're the assistant to the diaper-changing table in the nursery. You are, if you were serving in that role, you were a leader. If you are a servant in any capacity in the church, you lead by virtue of your service. Servant leadership is absolutely fundamental for the church. And when we lose it, we turn the gospel on its head. We make it all about me, prosperity gospel, and we hurt the church. We hurt the church badly. Second thing, quickly, good governance, godly governance. He says, chapter 1, verse, verse 1 again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers or the elders and the deacons. So this little group begins to meet. This little group coalesces in, in Thyatira in the home of Lydia. Now, if you've ever been to a place like Pompeii, you'll get a, a picture of what her house was probably like. It was a large facade with an entrance gate, and you would walk in, and there would be probably a fountain and a large, large area, maybe half the size of this room, and the fountain in the middle, and all kinds of rooms off to the, uh, off to the outside, kitchens and bedrooms and various other, various other rooms. But there would be lots and lots and lots of room to host worship in a very private place because there would be high walls with a gate, two gates usually, that could be closed off. So there they were, the jailer and his family, Lydia and her family, Epaphroditus, Iodia and Syntyche, Clement and their families, 
An unnamed person that Paul calls my true companion, that we can guess who he is, but we don't know who he is, along with the household slaves and others. So this was not a small group. My guess is somewhere between 50, maybe more, people meeting in this initial birth of the church. So it was not a small group, but hear this, it was not a homogeneous group. It was an incredibly diverse group. Lydia and her household were almost certainly Jewish. There were slaves and owners. There were freed men. There were men and women. They were rich and poor and people from all ethnicities and backgrounds. And there they were meeting in the church. And one of the, thing, one of the amazing things that characterized the first century church, one of the amazing things that characterizes this church is that God brings people together who, from human perspectives, should not be in fellowship with each other. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. God levels the playing field. Because all of us, as Paul says, are saints. That's what defines us. It's not our wealth. It's not our skin color. It's, it's not the job we have. It's not where we live, the car we drive. What defines us, our identity is rooted in that one thing, that we are saints made holy by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's who we are. That's what defines us. Holy ones, hegios is the Greek word. And Paul understood that building a church in such a stratified, stratified hierarchical society where economics, social background, and race defined and assigned you, there was huge potential for, divert, to, for, for disunity and conflict. Huge potential for disunity and conflict. He knew that they were saints, but he also knew that they were saints who were prone to sin. Saints who were struggling to let go of their old culture, their old society, their old way of life, their old way of thinking about other people and about themselves. And so what he does is create structure in the church. And he identifies a structure. He creates a structure that would govern, adjudicate, and lead the church. Now remember, they are all saints. They are all children of God, washed in the blood of Christ, forgiven by his grace. But Paul calls certain of them to certain roles. So there are the saints with the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. And that was Paul's custom. Read Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul did this in every church without exception. Paul created structure. Paul created authority. Over the next 10 years, Paul would visit Philippi two more times. But the day that he and his team left, Timothy and Silas and, and Luke left, those people, those men that he had appointed to leadership, gave structure, gave shape to the church. So in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, when Paul identifies the ongoing conflict between Iodia and Syntyche, two women that he had worked with closely while he was with them, he asks Clement and a, his true companion, we don't know who he or she was perhaps, that would have been a he. he. We don't know who he was. But he says, look, go and adjudicate this situation. Go and, and lead this situation. Bring unity back between these women who have a severed or at least strained relationship. 
Interesting, just by the way, Clement continued to serve with the apostle. You can read about him later on in the book of Acts. And he became the bishop of Rome, was martyred in about 100 AD by being tied to an anchor and tossed into the Mediterranean Sea. But here he is, leading as an elder in this church, blessing this church, fighting for unity in the church. And here's the point. The church is not a democracy. It never has been. The church is not a democracy. A democracy is all about when everybody gets their say. You know what the church is about? The church is a theocracy. I know who gets to call the shots? Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And he, he makes the rule. He is the one who guides us. He is the leader of this church. Every church that is a genuine, authentic church is, is led by its head, Jesus, the Messiah. It's a theocracy with Jesus as his head and elders who follow the great shepherd. One of the great misconceptions that we make in the church is that we elect elders to represent us. Nothing could be further from the truth. And when you, by the way, start electing elders or appointing elders to represent certain constituencies in the church, forget it. It's over. It's done. Uh, elders come into the church and they put all their agendas and their personal points of view aside and they get on their face before God and they say, Father God, lead us. What do you want? Where are you taking us? What is your plan for us? Show us your heart for this church. Give us wisdom and clarity that we might lead with the confidence of knowing that thus saith the Lord. This is where God has led us. So elders lead, deacons serve and love the flock and followers follow you know, we all know stories of churches that have imploded, been destroyed through conflict and division. Situations that bring much discredit upon the name and the cause of Jesus. And in my experience, it has always been one of two things. Poor leadership and poor followership. I'm not sure if followership is a word, but I'm using it and you understand what I'm saying. I think I've come to realize that of those two, followership is way more difficult because I have just joined the group of followers after being in the group of leadership for 30 some odd years. And now I am part of a church family where I'm not an elder. I sit Sunday morning, I was there last Sunday, and I sometimes serve in the parking lot. And I'm following the leaders. And it's not easy. You know why it's not easy? Because by nature, I am distrustful. By nature, I am suspicious. By nature, I have been trained, I think, in this culture to look at leaders askance and wonder, are they trustworthy? Should I follow? I had an experience years ago when I first went to our church, 1988, back in a previous century. And I... I was there, I was 31 years of age, Cindy was, I think, 17, and uh, the first week, I had two people, independently of one another, come up to me and said, one of your elders is immoral, and I was blown away, because I'd asked them, are there any skeletons in the closet before I took the position? Oh, no, no skeletons here, we're all good. So I didn't know, I, I didn't know, so I talked to these two individuals, and they told me what was going on, and it seemed, because they, they, hadn't, they hadn't conferred, and it seemed very suspicious. So I went to the elder in question. I said, brother, you can't serve. One of the things that the Bible says is you must be above reproach. And right now, I don't know if you're guilty of this, but you are not above reproach. So you need to step down. 
Well, he caused a huge fuss, and he threatened to sue me and all, all kinds of stuff. But anyways, he left the church in the end. And what, what became, and we didn't have the freedom to tell the church family the details because we weren't absolutely sure of the details. And we didn't want to slander this guy if he wasn't guilty, but at the same point, we didn't want a guy who could potentially be guilty serving on our board. So we didn't say to the congregation what happened. We simply asked them to trust us. And many of them didn't. And many of them left the church. And I wanted to scream. Well, I was screaming inside. You don't know. Can't you just trust me? We've done this well. We have led with integrity. We've done it for your sake. Would you please trust? So here I am, 32 years later, on the other side of the other side of the aisle. I'm now firmly in the followership side of things. And I keep reminding myself, trust these guys. They are good and godly men. They love Jesus. Their heart is to know his will for our church. So just follow. Just acknowledge. Esteem them. Respect them. Obey them. Because they keep watch over my soul as ones who will give an account to God. So my job is to let them them do their job with joy and not with sorrow because that would bring no profit to me or the rest of the church. That's a paraphrase of Hebrews 13, verse 17. So godly structure is incredibly important. And to have godly structure and to have it work, you need godly elders, godly leaders, and godly followers. So wherever you are in this equation, whether you are a leader or whether you are a follower, do your role well. Do your role well. God will bless the church. Thirdly, an ethos, a growing ethos of grace and peace. Paul basically says, here's my heart's desire. He blesses them. He sort of prays for them. He says, my desire for you is that you would know grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that our whole foundation as Christians is rooted in grace. It is the grace of God that sent Jesus to the cross. It was the grace of God that caused him to pour out his wrath upon his son. It was God's grace that, gave Christ, that caused Christ to give me his righteousness in that moment. It was his grace that quickened me and brought me to eternal life when he caused me to be born again. Everything of the gospel is of grace. And grace produces one one overall overarching quality, peace. But it's a threefold peace, right? Because of grace, we have peace with God. It's vertical. Because of grace, we have peace within. I know that I am loved. I know that I am secure in the loving hands of Almighty God. But also, it is peace relationally. We can have peace with one another. We should have peace with one another. The whole testimony of the church is predicated upon us having peace with one another. As I've already said, this church was a church that was incredibly prone to conflict. There were slaves in there who had masters who perhaps were unkind and abused them at one point in time before they came to understand grace. And now peace is Paul's benediction for them. Peace is Paul's prayer for them. You know, there are people worshiping together in this church that, that would not have been in the same room together, let alone worshiping together before the gospel, before grace impacted their lives.
Grace can bridge, can surmount the most significant divide, the most significant conflict. And when we give others the grace that God has given to us, we create within the church an ethos of love and harmony and unity that is fundamentally attractive to the non-Christian. Her brother said it in his baptism. I don't know if he heard it. But he said he came into this church and he sensed something. He sensed this attractiveness. And he wasn't able to put his finger on it. I had a guy come into our church years ago. He was a real estate agent, still in Georgetown. He said, there's something about this place, and I don't know what it is, but I'm not leaving until I figure out what it is. And of course, it was the Holy Spirit. is the presence of grace flowing through the medium of peace in the congregation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I've used that in funerals for 40 years. But it's not just about peace within. It's peace with God and peace amongst ourselves. And when we have that peace, when we love each other, when we give, God, when we give God's grace to one another, and by that I mean when we forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us, when we love each other as God in Christ has loved us, when we show mercy as God in Christ has shown us mercy, when we take the grace of God and receive it and become a conduit for that grace, it creates a delightful atmosphere. It is a foretaste of heaven. And when someone from the world walks in amongst us, they are, they are enraptured by it. Doesn't mean they're going to come to Christ. Doesn't mean they're going to be saved. But there is an attractiveness to us. And that's what Paul wants for this church. He knows it's part of who they are. It's part of their DNA, as I said at the beginning of this. But he wants it to be nurtured and fostered and grow. Grace producing peace. I think I said in a sermon one of the sermons I preached here before, I, I, I talked about this, and I said that if we refuse to give God's grace, if we withhold forgiveness and mercy and love and tolerance and kindness and gentleness and all those kind of things that we have received in spades from, the, from, from Christ, if we withhold it, we, we then become, our, our behavior, our attitude, our ethos becomes a contradiction to the very message we preach. Right? We, we preach a message of reconciliation. And what Paul's saying in this book is, listen, girls, Yodi and Syntyche, look, come on. We, you, know, you know the gospel. God has given you grace. Clement and my true friend, help these women understand this. You've got to give what God has given to you. Otherwise, you completely nullify and belie your message. Might as well just shut down. Close up shop. I love the diversity of this church. Growing up in Georgetown, it was a very waspy community. It's starting to change a lot now, which is, which is so good. But Cindy came from a, a church in Rexdale, and I think at one point you had 52 different nationalities. And I would go to that church and worship. It just, I loved it. I loved it because it was just this little picture of what heaven is going to be like. And God brings people who should be from a sort of a human sinful perspective at each other's throats, and he brings them together in the church. It's just awesome to see. It just proves, it just evidences the validity of the gospel that God transforms people from the inside out. Slaves and free, rich and poor. Doesn't matter your skin color. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter. We are saints together in Christ. 
And that's what defines us, and we love one another because of that. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that. <laughs> Let me just make sure here. I'm wasting all this time. I'm not going to skip that. The, f- the fourth thing is this. They had a shared partnership in the gospel. So, so he begins to pray for them. Now we're going we're to start this and we'll pick it up again next week. But he says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? What's the reason for this joy? Why is he praying with such enthusiasm and, and gladness in his heart? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So for 13 years, we have been in partnership in the gospel. The word partnership can also be translated participation. The word is a very common word, and we all know what it is. It's koinonia. The word is fellowship, fellowship of the gospel. We translate that to mean we're going to have fellowship next Sunday after church, and that's a good thing. There will be bouncy castles, and I'm, I'm coming. I want a hamburger, please. So I'm registered now. Good, so I'm registered. Um, but, the, but the word really is rooted in this idea of business partnerships. When, when two people would come together, two businessmen, two businesswomen would come together, they would invest everything that they have in a partnership, and they would enter into a fellowship. See that? Fellowship. That's what the word means, partnership, fellowship. And so Paul thinks back to the times, right from the very beginning, He thinks about those nights where they were sitting around in in Lydia's house and and just talking about the day and what God had done through them. He's he's thinking about how Iodia and Syntyche had labored with him side by side in so many ways. He's thinking about how Epaphroditus had come to faith, how God had saved him, how Clement and his family had come to faith. They talked about the, to, the, to the Philippian jailer and just like, do you remember what God does, did? Isn't it amazing? You see, this church was bound together by one overriding thing, and that was their fellowship in the gospel. They were all committed to that one thing. They were all serving Christ, sharing the gospel. The church was bound together by a shared purpose and a shared passion. It was the battle. It was the struggle. It was the suffering that bound them together as men in a foxhole are bound together by a shared enemy. Great churches are comprised of people who are all working toward the same goal. Great churches are are comprised of people who are all putting their shoulder to the same wheel, who are all pulling on the same rope, who are all working to accomplish the same goal. But it's important to understand this. They weren't just serving the church. They weren't just focusing on their needs and their desires and their ministries and their blessings and their joy and their comforts. They were an outward-facing church so we, here we got Epaphroditus in Rome. We got Clement traveling with Paul. 
they, they were people who were committed to the vision of the Apostle Paul to take the gospel, the whole gospel, to the whole world. Sadly, I think that there's many churches in our culture that have become inwardly facing. They've become myopic. They think that church exists for the church's sake. And again, as soon as you get to that mentality, you might as well shut the doors and go home because the Holy Spirit just sort of quietly leaves. I blame a lot of this mindset on the seeker-friendly, attractional, felt-needs model that was really popular in the 90s. I think it's still popular in some places. The whole premise is wrong. The idea that we create a church to, to minister to felt needs and, and we bring people in because we got the best of everything. It's, 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 so, it's so easy in that context to focus on ourselves. The church exists for the world. You were saved to take the gospel to our culture. That's, that's why God saved you. That's the reason that he saved you, to take the gospel to our world. And what is the church then in that context? Well, the church is a place where when you've been out in the battlefield and you've gotten beaten up, the church is a place where you come back in and you get, you get ministered to. You find comfort. You find encouragement. Places that, the church is a place where you're taught, where you're motivated, where, where you get sort of pumped up to go back out into the world to do what God has called you to do, to take the gospel to our community. One of the things I love about this church, I think that I was talking to me here this morning, I think there's only been one Sunday that I've been here in the last many Sundays that you haven't had a baptism. That is phenomenal. That's awesome. Now, why is that? Because you're an outward-facing church. And so counterintuitive. The churches that we admire oftentimes are inward-facing. They got the best pastor. He's just so great. And they got the best music. And they got the best programs. They got the best facilities. Big, fat budget. Everything's going great. And everybody's happy because everybody's just feeding and, and looking after themselves. And it's all about me, me, me. Folks, God bless churches like that. But we should be a church that faces the world. And when the world beats up on us and we have discouragement and difficult times, we come back in. We turn around and come back into the fellowship. And the fellowship ministers to us and blesses us. And we're taught and we're built up and we're edified and we're encouraged and, and we're helped and we're strengthened. And then we go back out into the fight. It's so important. And we're facing churches have so much surface integrity but oftentimes very, very little sense of the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. I wanted to show you this just as I close. When I retired a while ago, my elders, one of the things they did for me is they, they gave me this. It's, um, we used to call ourselves the Band of Brothers. I don't know if you recognize that. That's from the Band of Brothers. And they all wrote on the back and put signatures and stuff, but it comes from Henry the, the, what's that, the fifth, fourth? I can't, I'm not good with Roman numerals. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. That's who we were. That's how we saw ourselves as elders. We were in a fight together. And did we always agree? No. Did we have challenges in our relationship? Of course we did. But this, this fight, this cause that God had called us to together is the thing that unified us. It was a thing that caused us to get over our, our hurt feelings, to get over our, our not getting our own way in certain circumstances because we were a band of brothers. 
pursuing the vision that God had given to us. And we weren't going to quit and we weren't going to stop because we were in a fight together. Folks, that's what makes a church great. And I don't know if you're in the fight. I really don't know if you're in the fight. I hope you are. Somebody clearly was. Those two people would not have been in that baptismal tank. And the person who's being baptized next, they would not be here was it for the fact that someone was in the fight. So are you in the fight? Are you in the fight? So the Lord's called us to. You know, I'd never, ever, ever have to preach a, a no pastor would ever have to preach a sermon on unity if every person in his church was passionate about the calling that God has placed upon our lives to go and change the world. Because we'd be in foxholes together, we'd be praying for our neighbors, we would be sharing the gospel, we'd get beaten up, we'd get laughed at, we might not get promoted, we'd come back into our small group and into this church and we'd be comforted and encouraged and helped and we'd go back out and we'd keep on fighting and unity wouldn't be a problem because we'd have a shared passion that we were pursuing. That's my heart for the church. The last thing I'm going to talk about next week is hope. Hope. Because you can be confident in this very thing, that God who began a good work in you will complete it. He's not finished. He's not done. God's got great things ahead for this great church. But our responsibility, your responsibility, is to continue never, never to forget those four things I talked about. And if we continue on that, on that path with that heart, God will continue to make this church greater and greater and greater for his glory. For his glory. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much that you're at work in this church. I thank you, Lord, that you want to continue that good work that you have began. And so, Father, I pray I pray that we would be a congregation of servants. A congregation of servants, saints who, who fulfill their role with integrity. A congregation of brothers and sisters who love one another and give to others the grace that God has given to us so that there might be peace and love and harmony and unity amongst us. And that, Father, each of us, each of us would pick up the sword that you have given to us and the shield that you have given to us, and that we would turn and face this lost community that desperately needs the gospel, and that we would go. And when we get beat up, when we get discouraged, when we're feeling overwhelmed, Lord, let this be a place of comfort and encouragement, a place of restoration and healing. But Lord, we look to you. We can't do it. No man has ever built a church, no group of people has ever built a church, because we are convinced that he who began that good work in us, will perfect it. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. So be gracious to us, we pray, as we strive to be the church that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.